Hello, I'm Rebecca Rosewood, and this is Thrice Cursed. Warning, Thrice Cursed is a true crime and paranormal podcast. It is intended for mature audiences. Some graphic depictions of violence and other unpleasant material may exist beyond this point. For more specific content warnings, please reference the episode notes. As promised, I'm working to slowly re-record and release the stories that I told on my former podcast, hopefully as bonuses. I don't have a ton of preamble for this one, but I will request that you listen through the cursed content bit at the end, as I do have a few announcements that I make in there. And again, I'll say, because this is a re-recording, my format will be slightly different than you're used to with original Thrice Cursed content. Because this was also done on my first episode ever on the last podcast, my source citing is quite abysmal. I don't have actual links from the research I did back then, but just general news sites, so I do truly apologize for that. As always, that information will be in the blog post. Now, into the case. Today, I'll be covering the case of Barbara, or Barbie, Blatnick. She was a 17-year-old Garfield Heights, Ohio native, known for being a bubbly and free-spirited girl. She loved people, heavy metal music, makeup, and dancing, and she was last seen alive shortly after midnight on December 20th, 1987. Standing in the kitchen on December 19th, 1987, Barbie spoke with her parents and older sister. According to her sister, Donna, she had said she would be attending a party at a bike shop that evening. This bike shop, Motorcycle Specialties, was known for having parties somewhat regularly. The owner would allegedly buy drugs and alcohol for those that would attend. I am not sure if the owner would actually get paid for any of this, but if not, I have to wonder why they were so generous with the drugs. I mean... I've personally never done a drug a day in my life, and even I know that shit ain't cheap. Regardless, as you can imagine, the type of guys that hung out there weren't exactly the kind you would ask to walk you home at night. From what I could find, most had criminal records for assault, drug use, and the like. None so far as murder, however. At least, not that I could ascertain. After her sister told her to be safe, Barbie left her home for what would be the last time. A friend picked Barbie up from home at either 4 or 6.30 p.m. on Saturday, December 19th. The discrepancy in time here is due to two separate newspapers reporting the time differently. From home, she took a taxi to her friend Phil's house. Together, they then went to the bike shop. After growing tired of that party, her and two girlfriends left and went to a local bar that would serve minors. They spent some time there, Then the three decided that they were ready to leave. Barbie asked her friends to drop her off at her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Jerry's house. The friends were hesitant, but Barbie was headstrong as always and insisted. In the aftermath of what's to come, Jerry insisted that he never saw or heard from her that evening and even had an alibi. This alibi was backed up by his father, who had ties to the Cleveland Police Department. What these ties were, I couldn't find, and I also couldn't find what his alibi even was. But information like that tends to not be released until well after the case is solved, so that kind of makes sense. 
Towards what was presumably the end of her evening, and approximately four hours after she had left, Barbie called her parents. She stated simply that she was nearby and would be home soon. When she didn't end up returning home that evening, her parents assumed she decided to stay at a friend's house and put it out of their minds. Her father, John, later stated that she liked to party, to have fun. Her friends crashed over here sometimes, and sometimes she crashed over there. Basically, it wasn't unusual for her to stay out for the night. Unfortunately, tonight wasn't one of those nights. Barbie was last seen near Warner Road and Grand Division Avenue shortly after midnight on December 20th, 1987. Later that morning, her body was found naked, save for only her class ring. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted. She was found in a wooded area not far off from the road near the Blossom Music Center in Cuyahoga Falls. It's here where things get a little weird. Not in a graphic sexual nature, so don't skip ahead. I'm not going into details. I don't see the need for that. The road that Barbara was found on was largely unused and quite overgrown due to newer roads being put in, which made this road essentially obsolete. So this road is overgrown and unnecessary, yet she was found within hours of being left there. For context, this road is about 30 miles or 48 kilometers away from where she had last been seen. If this doesn't sound totally strange to you, I'll reiterate a bit. The person who killed Barbara drove her all this way to dispose of her body, but didn't then drive further in where people were less likely to find her. Maps of the area show that this road goes on for quite a ways, and as this was the middle of winter, if whoever did this drove further in, one snowfall could have prevented her from being found until at least spring. So, why? An officer on the case said that no attempt whatsoever was made to conceal the body, and that it had to have been a conscious decision for her body to be left somewhat in the open to be found immediately. I'll get into my theory on this, towards the end. The morning of December 20th went on as normal for Barbara's family. Donna and her mother, Teresa, were out doing some last-minute Christmas shopping that morning. And the entire time, the girl's mother was overwhelmed with a feeling of dread. Something's weird. Something's wrong, she kept saying. At the same time, the police showed up at their front door, where John answered. The police had a photo of Barbara and were asking questions about the prior evening. At this time, no missing persons report had even been filed because, again, crashing at a friend's house was somewhat normal for Barbara. So just think about that for a second. Barbara's body was found so quickly that her parents hadn't even thought to file a missing persons report yet. It just doesn't make sense. According to Donna, despite not having been too concerned the night prior, Upon arriving home and seeing police officers in the driveway, that nagging feeling of dread she'd had all morning culminated when she said, Barbie's dead. This case went unsolved for 32 years, but there were some theories. Three, to be exact. Theory one was that someone close to Barbara did this, and for a while, people thought it had been her on-again, off-again boyfriend. However, as previously stated, he had an alibi. Theory two was that it was someone at the edge of her social circles. Someone Barbara thought that she knew, but evidently didn't. And theory three 
was that there was a serial killer in their midst. There was some evidence to corroborate this, as four other women had been murdered in the area, and all of those cases were also unsolved. Police were able to rule that out, however, as the method of murder was different and Barbie was younger than the other victims. I didn't really include any information about these other crimes because it was ruled out so quickly. For 32 years, all questions regarding who could have done this to Barbie had gone unanswered. That is, until May of 2020. And can I just say, with the absolute shit show that was 2020, it was a great year for justice. I mean, what, we caught the Golden State Killer. There were so many other cases. Of course, none are coming to mind now that I'm talking into a microphone. But there were so many cases where it's like, hey, yet another unsolved case has just been has just been discovered. We've just figured it out. So while, like I said, while 2020 was an absolute shit show and 10 out of 10 do not recommend, definitely would not want to live through it again. Uh, it was really great for cold cases. Ah, oh, silver linings. Yay. James Astonic, age 67, was arrested on May 6th of 2020 and charged with first-degree murder. He was found largely due to Donna Zanith's constant efforts to keep her sister's case alive, as well as the efforts made by James Renner, The Porchlight Project, and Colleen Fitzpatrick and her team at Identifinders International. And I know I said that last part really slow, but like, <laughs> Identifinders International is such a hard thing to say for me, you guys. I'm actually really surprised I'm not going to have a blooper about me trying to say that, but I will have one about me trying to stay surprised, apparently. Enjoy that. Renner, a well-known author and investigative journalist, founded the nonprofit The Porchlight Project in August of 2019. His goal was to find and provide funding for cold cases requiring investigative services and DNA testing. As I'm sure anyone listening is aware, the backlog of cold cases is boundless and the funding to solve them is minimal. The Porchlight Project seeks to help carry that burden so that the families may finally be able to have, if not closure, answers. This case was Porchlight's first, and they funded the DNA testing done by Colleen Fitzpatrick and her team at Identifinders International. Fun fact, this is the same team that cracked the DNA evidence leading to the arrest of the Golden State Killer. Frankly, Colleen Fitzpatrick is the hero we all need, and she is too good for this earth. It's rare that I fangirl, but this woman is just, I, I, like, I literally don't even know how to explain it. She's just, just, if you're listening, thank you. I doubt you're listening, but, yeah, (sighs) you never know. Maybe I'm famous, and I just don't know it. It's fine. (laughs) The DNA tests that were done utilized the DNA evidence taken from underneath Barbara's fingernails. This evidence had both Barbara's and the assailant's DNA mixed. After extensive efforts, they were able to marker by marker separate Barbara's DNA from the assailant's using Donna's 23andMe DNA sample as a guide. From there, they were able to create a DNA profile for her attacker. And like, that's a super simplified version because that is a lot of work. Through that extremely extensive process, they were then able to narrow their search down to James Zastonic and his three brothers. 
After narrowing the list of suspects to the Zastonics, detectives then focused their attention on James Zastonic due to the proximity of his workplace to Barbie's last seen location. As I mentioned earlier, at the time of her murder, Zastonic was working in a factory on Warner Road in Garfield Heights. As I mentioned earlier, Barbie was last seen on the corner of Warner and Grand Division Road in Garfield Heights. They were able to find this family's DNA because two of his three brothers had been in prison, charged with, you guessed it, sex crimes. Yeah, real bunch of winners there. Honestly, I'm not usually one to judge people based on their family members. I mean, look at what I've told you about my family. I would literally be single forever if everyone judged me based on them. But at this point, it's kind of a numbers game. Two of four children in the same generation have been charged with sex crimes. That's more than just a coincidence at that point. I don't know if it's nature versus nurture in this instance, but either way, if I find that out about someone's family, I'm getting the fuck out of Dodge. And before anyone comes for me, I'm not judging the people who knew and chose to associate with James regardless. I may have a pretty big no forgiveness policy when it comes to things like sexual assault, but I've also been known to forgive things that shouldn't have been forgiven and give second chances where they certainly weren't deserved. I'm also the queen of ignoring my own intuition and overlooking a million red flags because I tend to see the good in people well before the bad bites me in the ass. <sighs> my anxiety is chronic. This ass is iconic. All right, I totally went off on a little tangent there, but all of this is to say, please don't torment the family members of the Sostonic family or the Blatnik family. Harassment and doxing is just a shitty thing to do. Back on track here. I was only able to find information on one of the brothers, Robert, who was charged with two counts of gross sexual imposition and one count of abduction in December of 2013 in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. Sensing a trend? Maybe? A third brother, Benton, went missing on December 19th, 2018. If that date sounds familiar, that's because it's the anniversary of Barbara's death. Not at all suspicious. <sighs> I'm just kidding. It's very suspicious. I don't like it. Not one bit. Benton was 59 years old at the time of his disappearance and is believed to have walked away from his home never to return. Suffering from neuropathy, causing severe mobility issues, I question how he got far enough to still be missing. In addition to these health issues, he left behind his eyeglasses, wallet, money, keys, and medications, including his very necessary seizure medication, taking only his ID. He remains missing to this day. And I have some things to say about that a little later. Before I get to that point, though, I am going to take a quick pause for, you guessed it, an ad break. Hey, Cursed Ones. Since you're listening to my podcast, I can only assume that, like me, you're into the dark and spooky sides of life that most people tend to stay away from. If that's the case, you'll love the new partnership I'm a part of. I've partnered with Melodramatic Fine Art to bring you a beautiful set of five spooky-looking postcards. 
Personally, I'm framing and hanging mine. They're so cool. I'm not sending them to anybody. They're mine. (laughs) Each postcard is five by seven inches, has a matte finish, and features photographs of eerie, spooky shit that I just cannot get enough of. We're talking dark chandeliers, a bathtub full of dirt and leaves, random toilet brush art that you'll have to see to believe. Not to mention, the creator of these is one of my very first supporters. So if you could help me support her, head to thricecursepod.com and click the menu option postcard set or search melodramatic fine art on Etsy. Make sure to use code THRICE10 at checkout for 10% off. So many crazy stories, so little time. In this podcast, we'll do the work. We'll find the craziest, best stories out there and bring them to you every week. Hopefully, this will help you get through the craziness that is going on in the world. And of course, there will be booze. Welcome to Booze and Bullshit. And I'm back. I know I'm singing a lot in this episode. I'm sorry. I know you guys don't want to hear it, but I had an energy drink. So you're welcome. (gasps) Oh, God, my listenership's going to just plummet after this. It's fine. (laughs) All right. So Lieutenant Chris Norfolk was unwilling to state whether or not James had previously been a suspect in this case. He did state, however, that he had been arrested in July of 1984 for exposing himself to two women. For those of you who are like me and have the memory of a pancake, that's three years and five months prior to Barbara's murder on December 19th of 1987. I find this flashing event particularly interesting because information that I found on Ancestry.com tells me that James had divorced from his first wife just one year prior to this incident. It really makes you wonder what else he may have done in between the flashing incident and Barbara's murder, because clearly there's been quite an escalation here. It is plausible that he jumped straight from one to the other, though I do believe it's more likely that something more sinister than indecent exposure may have occurred between the two. This is completely unfounded, by the way. It's purely speculation. At the time of Barbie's death, Zastonic's place of work was a factory only one-eighth of a mile from where she was last seen. This led investigators to believe that this was possibly a crime of opportunity or a possible social link, as was previously considered. Now, here is where I'll get into my theory that I hinted at earlier. Please note that what I'm about to say is to be taken with even less than a grain of salt, like just not even a semi-particle, just I'm just throwing shit out there because it makes sense to me. But again, I have no evidence to substantiate any of this, and a giant allegedly should be tacked onto the front of this entire thing. I will once again request that you do not reach out to either of the families involved in this horrible tragedy. While it can be easy to demonize the families of the perpetrators and attack them with questions of how could you not know? Uh, The truth is that those families are also victims, and uh, nobody knows that somebody's going to turn into a murderer before it happens. It's just like... Sure, I could see anybody turning into a murderer, but that doesn't mean I'm going to like just automatically know like my boyfriend could murder me tomorrow and I'd have no idea. Uh, He's also listening to me talk right now. So if I die tomorrow, it was him. (laughs) 
anyways. Sorry, that's probably super inappropriate. Um, so I'm sure it's super frustrating for those of you that listen to all of my episodes to constantly hear this over and over again. But I have seen way too many times in true crime podcasting where a fan base goes rabid and attacks innocent grieving people in the name of a podcast. And those podcasters say absolutely nothing. Looking at you, Morbid. I don't ever want to be that, facilitate that, or have my intentions misconstrued to the point that I become party to it. So I do apologize for the repetitiveness of my disclaimers, but it's very, 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 very important to me that the innocent parties be protected at all costs. All of that aside, (laughs) uh, I just lost so many listeners again. Uh, That's fine. All of that aside, I will get into my theory. Just remember the word alleged. I'm going to get that tattooed on my forehead. My theory is that both James and his missing brother carried out the crime. While James felt no remorse, his brother did. This remorse became apparent when he insisted that they drop Barbie's body somewhere she would be found, likely for her family's sake. Sure, they had murdered her and didn't want to get caught, but at least her family wouldn't have to wonder what happened to her. They wouldn't spend sleepless nights wondering if she was lost and alone in the cold Ohio winter. They'd know that her suffering and subsequent death was swift. Over the years, James and his brother likely had many conversations about whether or not they should come forward. And finally, in 2018, it all came to a head. His brother was going to turn himself in, and James couldn't have that happen. He needed to tie up his one and only loose end. Or at least he thought it was his one and only loose end. Like, these guys usually think they're smarter than they are. (sighs) On December 19th, 2018, the anniversary of Barbie's death, it seems likely that the brother, Benton, had some kind of meltdown. He could have called James and said he simply couldn't do it anymore. Maybe James faked his agreement and said he'd pick up his brother to turn themselves in together. Or... Maybe James insisted that they have one more conversation before the brother turned himself in. Then, James made sure that he could never tell the authorities what the pair had done. Obviously, his brother could have disappeared in a way that was completely unrelated to this, and I could be totally off base. But, based on what I've read, it just seems sketch as hell. And, like, this could be a very real possibility. It makes sense to me that this would be why he'd disappear on the anniversary of her death and why no one can find him now. I also questioned as I was doing my research whether or not the brother may have gone off and committed suicide after years of guilt finally wore him down. However, the fact that he had mobility issues causes me to question this. If he's unable to walk much on his own, unlikely that he would have been able to go somewhere to carry that out where he wouldn't have been found in a somewhat timely manner. The fact that he's still missing, to me, indicates that someone had to have been involved so that the body could be hidden. Again, I would just like to reiterate that my theory is completely unsubstantiated. These are inferences I've made based off of the information that has been released to the public I will once again request that you do not reach out to or target the families of either of these men. Thank you. (laughs) At James Zastonic's arraignment, which was done via video chat thanks to COVID, Zastonic pled not guilty and bond was initially set at $1 million. 
This bond was later lowered to only $100,000, which is a bit ludicrous to me, but as we all know, the justice system is broken. Zostanik is also being looked into for another unnamed cold case from 10 years prior that has a similar M.O. This case is obviously still ongoing, but is proof that even when you think you got away with it, you didn't. You didn't. We'll find you. It's fine. Like, enjoy your freedom now because we're coming. A post on the Justice for Barbara Blatnick Facebook page aptly said in November of 2019, We know you've been reading this. Oh, they'll be knocking on your door soon. You can count on it. And how right they were. Donna Zanath marked the arrest by visiting the area where Barbara was found and leaving behind a memorial in the form of flowers, a butterfly suncatcher, and several pinwheels. She says that catching her sister's killer doesn't mean closure, but that she and her family can begin to move forward with their lives. Hopefully, this case moves forward as quickly as possible and allows for them to do just that. As of this re-recording, there have been no updates on this case that I could find. It doesn't appear that a trial has concluded. Once it does, I'll likely post a small update with sentencing information and a motive should one ever come out. Either way, here's hoping that whatever is left of this miserable troll's life is spent behind bars. It will never be enough, and it will never, ever take away the family's pain or suffering. But at least, finally, he will be off the streets for good. This has been the cursed tale of a murder left unsolved for 32 years, and a signal to those on the run that even if you think you got away, you didn't. We're coming for you. For more cursed content, find me on the Sochmeads. Am I cool yet, youths? You know I am. I'm awesome. So you can find me on the social meets at Thrice Curse Pod. Join the Facebook group or Discord server through the menu on thricecursepod.com. Check out the Thrice Cursed blog where I post episodes in written form along with all their photos and missing persons and unsolved features. You can also support me on Patreon where I post ad-free episodes and behind the scenes for each episode. Behind the scenes includes things like news clippings that aren't free to the public, certain things I had to factor into my notes, various struggles I had, etc., Like right now, I'm researching some spooky ship thing that I'm not going to reveal a ton of details about, but it sent me into a research spiral where I'm now learning that we, as America, Americans, I don't know, English, uh, America basically displaced a bunch of native people from an island. Are we surprised? And then nuked the ocean nearby for like 12 years. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, you'll get more information like that on my Patreon, things that I can't fit into the episodes or uh, don't want to or whatever. I don't know. Um, So yeah, behind the scenes like that, you can find my Patreon at patreon.com slash thricecursepod. If a monthly commitment is too much for you, I get it. Times are hard, as Mrs. Lovett of Sweeney Todd would say. Now I have a buy me a coffee. So for those of you that want to support in some way, but don't always have an extra $5 a month laying around, I feel you. You can find that at buymeacoffee.com slash pod. And for an easier time for all of you, all of those links are on my website. Finally, I know I feel like I've been talking about me forever. You can also find merch on the Thrice Curse website under the merch link. I've kept my profit from merch minimal because I want everyone to be able to afford and enjoy it. I know how much it sucks to absolutely love a podcast and want a t-shirt or a sweater only to find out it's like $40 for a shirt, which is like a 
big no for me. So with a goal of full transparency, for every clothing item sold, I will make about $3. And for every sticker, I'll make maybe 50 cents. All of this to say, I want you to rock the merch without having to give me an arm or a leg if you'd prefer. (laughs) I don't want your arms or your legs. Seriously, guys, please don't send those in the mail. I still have a P.O. box. I don't want them. (laughs) Uh, So dumb. Eventually, when I start actually hopefully making a profit from this podcast, I do intend to start donating some of those profits to different nonprofits that help with, you know, ending the backlog, solving cold cases, uh, ending domestic violence or offering support for victims of domestic violence, you know, things of that nature. But right now, uh, my podcast is very much costing me money. So not there yet, but hopefully one day. Anyways, until next time. Keep your curses hexy and your hex is sexy. I find this flashing from home. She took a taxi to her friends, to her friends at the time of her murder. Nope. I'm actually really supplied. And I'm just waiting for the dogs to stop barking. I'm getting the fuck out of George. George? George. I created a new word. Check out the thrice curse blood. Blood? Blood. I want to suck your blood.